In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Alexander Schmemann wrote, This world rejected Christ, refused to see in him its own life and fulfillment. And since it has no other life but Christ, by rejecting and killing Christ, the world condemned itself to death. Its only ultimate reality is death, and none of the secular eschatologies in which men still put their hope can have any force against the simple statement of Tolstoy, and after a stupid life there shall come a stupid death. In its self-sufficiency, the world and all that exists in it has no meaning, and as long as we live after the fashion of this world, as long, in other words, as we make our life an end in itself, no meaning and no goal can stand, for they are dissolved in death. It is only when we give up freely, totally, unconditionally the self-sufficiency of our life, when we put all its meaning in Christ, that the newness of life, which means a new possession of the world, is given to us. The world then truly becomes the sacrament of Christ's presence, the growth of the kingdom, and of life eternal. Our gospel lesson for the day, though directly related to Israel's religious leadership, and their rejection of Christ, is very well summed up by Father Shmeman. The world has condemned itself to death in rejecting Christ, the source of life. This parable, rooted in the prophetic tradition of our Old Testament scriptures, is about Israel, at least initially. God brought the descendants of Abraham out of slavery in Egypt into the land of promise, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. He gave them a covenant through Moses by which they could honor him, and live a life of flourishing in the land. That covenant included a series of incredible blessings for those who remained in covenant faithfulness with God, and it also predicted incredible destruction for those that willfully continued in covenant unfaithfulness. Throughout Israel's history, God sent prophets to come and call them back to himself. Very often the prophets would have the harshest critiques for the religious leaders of the day, essentially saying that they had become blind guides leading people astray telling them whatever they wanted to hear. As in the parable, so often the prophets of God were maligned, abused, beaten, and sometimes killed. Here again, as with the parable of the workers who joined the workforce late in the day, we see the incredible mercy of God. Time and time again, he sends his messengers to people rebelling against him. Time and time again, he calls out the message of repentance and faith, inviting people back into loving fellowship with him. And time and time again, the people refused. In the parable, the plot comes to a head when the landowner sends his son, saying, They will respect my son. The irony with which Jesus and Matthew have set up this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees is incredible. Jesus is riffing off what should have been a fairly well-studied text from Isaiah that we had read for us as our first lesson this evening. It's a song about God's vineyard that had been set up in every way to flourish, yet failed to bring forth fruit to reflect that flourishing. What the religious leaders should have known is that the vineyard was Judah and Israel, and in fact, the very people that they condemn as wretched men deserving a wretched end, those tenants running the place, well, that's them. And the very one telling them the story is the son. And as the words of the father make clear, you'd have to be insane to not respect the son. And then Jesus quotes to them from the Psalms. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The images here would have been immediate for Jesus' hearers, as they were involved in a massive temple-building project. 
And just as the actual masons would inspect the stonework, looking for the perfect stone to set the initial corner of the building and make it true and square and lasting, so the religious leaders were building a spiritual house and supposedly inspecting the stones, the people under their care. Jesus is telling them that the cornerstone, the thing upon which God's entire dwelling place with man rests, is the same stone that was rejected by them, the priestly builders. We're going to circle back to this in a minute. As Jesus ends this discourse, through which we've been waiting these past few weeks, it's obvious this is not cuddly, cute Jesus. Therefore, the kingdom of God, he says, will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed, ground into powder. In many ways, the entire world has not stopped tripping over the stumbling block of Jesus Christ. How could God become incarnate? How could he get dragged outside the camp to the place of uncleanness and condemnation and be brutally killed, surrounded by criminals? What kind of God gets spit on and slapped in the face but doesn't say a word? What is this weakness, this humiliation? This is why we believe faith is a gift of God and a complete miracle in the human person. Jesus looks nothing like we expect him to. But to stumble over him in this life is to have a life that is broken to pieces. It's to reject grace, to reject mercy. And the heat of his love is so strong that if we're not found in him when he comes again, it's as if we'll disintegrate before such purity and grace, unable to accept it, we'll be crushed by it. In a certain sense, what Jesus is talking about in this lesson has already happened. The kingdom was indeed ripped from the hands of the religious leaders, and in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed as it had never been destroyed before, bringing an end to the temple system that stood at the center of Israel's life for centuries. And the kingdom of God was given to a people, the church, a new nation made up of Jews and Gentiles who had placed their trust in this Messiah, Jesus, and been baptized into the triune name of God. And this is where we have to do a little extra work. It's not enough to say, oh, Matthew was writing this to the early church to just kind of record a verbal victory by Jesus and offer an authoritative setup for the church being the people who have received the kingdom. That's part of it. But we are also being given a warning about how easy it is to fall into disbelief of God's goodness. The vineyard is still the trysting place of God. It's still the place where God comes and calls his bride to join him in fellowship. Israel was meant to have this intimate fellowship. Israel was meant to be a kingdom of priests reflecting God's glory out into the world and bringing the world back into relationship with God. But Israel failed to commit herself to the Lord and in so doing was unable to behave priestly in the world. So this task has now been given to the church. We are a royal priesthood. We are the stones being built up into the place of God's dwelling. We're the vineyard that should be bearing the fruit of the kingdom. What's the fruit of the kingdom? It's actually pretty simple. Repentance and faith. A life of repentance and faith. It's simple, but it's not easy. This life of consistent recalibration and retrust requires us to keep company with Christ and his church. For some of us, this repentance and faith will require celibacy in the midst of a world that assumes life without sex isn't really life. For some of us, it will require a radical generosity in the midst of a world that is so incessantly consuming, it doesn't even recognize greed anymore. For pretty much all of us, it requires a repudiation of self-sufficiency and perceived autonomy. In other words, it feels an awful lot like dying, like taking up your cross, like losing your life. 
This is what St. Paul is getting at in his letter to the Philippians that we heard read this evening as well. He's imploring the Philippian Christians to follow his example, his example being one who had every reason to place confidence in himself, but since being struck blind by the glory of Christ has considered all things garbage, worthless, a total loss compared with knowing Christ. Our reading began with Paul saying that he is pressing on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. Pressing on is his way of summing up what he said just prior to that, which is, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Do you see that when we say over and over here that those who have been baptized and placed their faith in Christ are hidden with him in God, What we're saying is this just isn't about a legal transaction on our behalf. It's not just about having your sins forgiven, though they are. This is about being brought into the divine life. It's about participation in Christ. It is this participation that is required if we are going to be witnesses for Christ's kingdom. We've got to be citizens of his kingdom. Telling people that Jesus died for their sins in a place like Portland makes about the same impact as telling them what your favorite coffee shop is. But when you understand that Jesus is the cornerstone rejected by the world builders, and that he's the stone from Daniel 2, remember Nebuchadnezzar has a bad dream, and he tries to get his diviners to interpret it for him, but he won't tell them what he dreamed, because he's gotten wily to their ways. And Daniel has the dream revealed to him by God, and goes to explain it to the king. The dream was about world kingdoms coming into power and becoming more and more sophisticated in their power and glory, all portrayed in the image of a statue made of various kinds of metals and clay strong and precious. But then there is this stone cut out of a mountain, not by human hands, and that stone demolishes the statue and then becomes a huge mountain that fills the entire earth. Christ is that stone. Kim Jong-un got you down? Trump or Putin or whoever got you worried? The kingdom of Christ is going to demolish all human kingdoms, and all those who have set themselves as enemies of his cross will find that their destiny is destruction. But do you see? It's just here in Paul's phrasing. They stand as enemies of the cross of Christ. Jesus doesn't out-macho world powers. The cross is a place of weakness. It's a place of suffering, a place where life is given in sacrifice to bring life to many. This is completely contrary to the way the world does business. And here is where we can bring it back down to the local level. It is not an accident that Christianity in America has become at the same time syncretistic with American civil religion and wildly consumeristic, and at the same time has systematically obscured the meaning and practice of the sacraments. In baptism, the picture is one of being buried, being brought into death, Not only that, but in the vows for baptism, we ask those coming to be baptized to renounce Satan and all his works. This is not just an outward expression of an inward reality. This is a transfer of citizenship from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's all about life flowing out of death through participation in Christ's death. Similarly, in the Eucharist, all the words and images have to do with life through death. On the night that he was betrayed and given up to death, He said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. All of this is revealing to us that we are dealing with a very different kind of king in a very different kind of kingdom. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done this week or this decade, the message is the same. 
Repent and believe. Nothing more is needed, for as the song in Isaiah said, what more could be done for my vineyard than I have done for it? In Christ, we have already been given everything we need. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Amen.